2: you know? In a Link's Awakening DX staff questionnaire, Zelda creator Shigeru Miyamoto confessed to having nightmares about game-breaking bugs in Zelda games. Ironically, development on Link's Awakening was more carefree for Miyamoto and marked the first time he took a back seat on a Zelda project. He joined the team towards the end of development to test the game and offer feedback. Link's Awakening originally began as a hobby project by programmer Kazuaki Morita. To test out what the Game Boy was capable of, Morita tried to make a Zelda-style game. This caught the eye of Takashi Tezuka, who'd just finished co-directing The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Tezuka yearned for more, however, and decided to join in on Morita's pet project. Tezuka recalled, We weren't particularly planning on a Zelda game for the Game Boy, but we thought we'd try it out to see how it would work. So at first, there was no official project. We'd do our regular work during normal work hours, and then work on it sort of like an after-school club activity. More people got involved over time, and Tezuka became impressed with their work as the project grew pushing him to formally pitch the game to Nintendo. Luckily, the project was quickly approved, and development on the first handheld Zelda game officially began. In spite of the game's new official status, the team still enjoyed relatively free reign due to the game being on the Game Boy. The crew originally planned to port a Link to the Past to the Game Boy, but the project evolved into its own unique title as the team added more to the game. The game even borrowed an unused idea from A Link to the Past, such as combining items for new effects. For instance, the fishing minigame was added in for fun by Marita, who has a reputation among his colleagues as an avid fisherman. Lead programmer on A Link to the Past, Toshihiko Nakago, explained it in an Iwata Asks interview, he's the kind of guy who makes fishing games without even being asked. Marita wasn't the only one who had fun either. Other members of the team enjoyed squeezing in Nintendo characters such as Yoshi, Kirby, Dr. Wright, and many more into the game. The crew often didn't even ask permission to put in these references. Tezuka stated, It was for the Game Boy system, so we thought, oh, it'll be fine. Maybe that's why we had so much fun making it. It was like we were making a parody of The Legend of Zelda. Not everything was a joke, though. For example, the surreal themes of Link's Awakening were heavily inspired by the cult classic American TV series, Twin Peaks. Tezuka recalled that Twin Peaks was popular at the time, and the show's drama came from a small number of characters in a small town, as well as its focus on dreams. So when it came to making Link's Awakening, he wanted to make something that would have deep and distinctive characters despite being small in scope. However, while Tezuka was brimming with ideas, the team struggled to plan out a story. Although Yoshiaki Koizumi was only brought onto the project to write the game's manual, he was quickly roped into writing the entire story alongside Kensuke Tanabe as well. The pair were relatively free to write whatever they wanted, as long as it remained in line with Tezuka's vision and didn't include anything related to Hyrule, Princess Zelda, or the Triforce. This proved to be a big leap for Koizumi in particular, who'd exclusively worked in smaller support roles beforehand. Nevertheless, Koizumi put his years studying film to good use and took the reins to make the game's storyline and the world of Koholint Island. Meanwhile, Tanabe worked on the concept of an ominous giant egg sitting atop a mountain into the story, an idea he'd been kicking around since working on A Link to the Past. Despite Link's Awakening's laid-back development, the game went on to make a serious impact on the evolution of the Zelda series. It introduced many firsts in the franchise and set the bar for future games to come. In fact, the game served a major inspiration for Ocarina of Time's developers. Series producer Eiji Aonema stated, The staff who worked on Ocarina of Time had all played Link's Awakening, so they had a sense of how far they could go with the series. I'm certain it was an important element in the series making a breakthrough. If we had proceeded from A Link to the Past straight to Ocarina of Time, without Link's Awakening in between, Ocarina of Time would have been different. In return, Malon and Talon were added to Ocarina of Time as direct references to Marin and Terran. Leading up to Link's Awakening's North American release, Nintendo held a publicity stunt known as the Zelda Whistle Stop Tour. At the event, participants started a three-day cross-country journey on a train in New York City. On the train, each contestant was given a Game Boy with a pre-release copy of Link's Awakening, with the goal to beat it before arriving at their destination. The first to complete the game would win a $1,000 prize for the charity of their choice. Additionally, each player was given five rupees, represented by Mamba Candies, that they could use to buy hints from Nintendo game counselors if they got stuck. More rupees could be won over the ride by correctly answering questions about the state the train was passing through at the time. The event didn't go as smoothly as Nintendo hoped, however. The train ride was planned to end in Los Angeles, but a major bridge on the route collapsed shortly beforehand, and the destination was switched to Seattle at the last minute. Later, when the train arrived in Chicago for a transfer, Matt Williamson was locked inside his sleeping compartment and wouldn't answer calls. Eventually, the train crew was forced to take a sledgehammer and break the door down, where they found Williamson fast asleep with his Game Boy still at his side. Afterwards, Williamson was affectionately nicknamed Sleeper by the other contestants for the rest of the ride. While the event was primarily held for the press, 1990 Nintendo World Champion Jeff Hansen was also invited to attend. Hansen managed to beat the game before anyone else, roughly two days into the journey. However, Nintendo refused to give Hansen the prize. Hansen told Nintendo Life, Unfortunately, there wasn't really any incentive for Nintendo to give me, the only non-journalist, the money, so I was a little disappointed to find out that I did not qualify. I recall that there were several others that also beat it before we arrived in Seattle, and the first one to do so, after me, was declared the official winner. According to Russ Sokola, a writer for EGM who came in second place behind Hansen, the journey was fun for those involved, despite any setbacks. road. From New York to Seattle, we played the Zelda game, had fun, got harassed by rude Amtrak personnel, and generally stuck together as a group bonded by such an unusual experience. Everyone on the Whistle Stop Tour accumulated anecdotes, learned more about each other, and had a great time playing games and seeing the fields, abandoned cars, people, and mountains through 12 states across the northern half of America. When I tell people about the trip, they look at me like I'm crazy that I actually went along voluntarily, but overall it was a positive once-in-a-life time experience. For Link's Awakening on Switch, development seems to have started sometime in 2016. This comes from a recent issue of Edge Magazine, where Eiji Anima admitted to secretly teasing the game to Edge back in 2016. In the 2016 interview, Anima stated, Nintendo has been telling me to create a new IP. But then, they're also telling me to make more Zelda games. I can't really share much. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say anything. But I really like the idea of a game where I can live as a thief. That's all I'll say. This was a nod to how in Link's Awakening, the player can steal items from the town tool shop. This wasn't the only clue fans got regarding a Link's Awakening remake. In mid-2018, Nintendo updated the official Zelda timeline on their website. The main reason for the update was to add Breath of the Wild to the site, but Link's Awakening was also moved during this update. The game was moved from taking place after the Oracle's games to taking place before. Although this probably wasn't an intentional hint, in hindsight it clearly signified that Nintendo were thinking about Link's Awakening story. According to Aonema, there were two main motivations for remaking the game on Switch. Firstly, the original Game Boy version is 26 years old now, and is becoming harder and harder to come by. Aonema wanted to make sure that new players will always be able to experience Link's Awakening in some form. And secondly, the team believed Link's Awakening was the perfect place to try out a new experimental feature. Shigeru Miyamoto was the first to bring up the idea of the dungeon creator feature. He thought letting players arrange their own dungeons would be a fun feature to add. When the team started to run with this idea, they realized that every dungeon room in Link's Awakening is about the same size, making the game a perfect fit. This also had its own appeal, as arranging preset rooms was like a puzzle in itself, which seemed to fit the Zelda series. Some fans have pointed out the similarities between the Dungeon Maker feature and the Super Mario Maker games. When asked if the success of the Chamber Dungeon mode could lead to a full-on Zelda Maker game, Aonuma told Kotaku, I can't predict the future, but if people do love this idea of arranging dungeons, I'll keep that in mind going forward. We have something in mind for everybody when we make the game, so that's what we hope players experience and enjoy as well. But we understand also that players have a desire for free customization. One noteworthy fact is that the Switch and Game Boy versions share practically none of the same developmental staff. Producer Eiji didn't start working on Zelda games until Ocarina of Time, and the Switch version is mainly being developed by Grezzo, who handled the 3D ports of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. The Switch team had a different approach than the Game Boy team, This can be seen with one action, where the team actually asked permission to use non-Zelda Nintendo characters. For a time, the Switch game's official website listed the number of players as, to be determined. Fans speculated this meant Nintendo were bringing back a feature cut from the original title, multiplayer. One design document for Link's Awakening showed two Links taking on some sort of enemy, with a note at the side saying, what are we gonna do about one player mode? This seems to imply there was a co-op mode at one point, possibly using the Game Boy Link cable. However, the Switch game's site was later updated, and clearly stated the game was for one player only.
3: In this show we're going to explore games that never made it to the united states we'll detail what's in the games and try to shed some light on why they went unpublished stateside software that isn't published in the u.s tends to be part of an obscure franchise but the title we're covering today comes from one of gaming's best known series pokemon The Pokémon franchise exploded during the 1990s. As with most popular series, Pokémon's creators tried to capitalize on the success of the anime and video games by creating a trading card game. Since the first generation of Pokémon games had already established a battle system, the trading card game's rules took inspiration from the Game Boy games. The card game launched in Japan in 1996 and reached the United States around two and a half years later. It took America by storm and became a trend amongst the nation's kids. During this two and a half year gap, a brand new Pokémon game was released in Japan based on the trading cards. A year after this game came out in its home country, it was translated and published in the West as Pokémon Trading Card Game for the Game Boy. Due to the success of the game, a second title was created and released in Japan in 2001. Although many Western fans waited for the second game to be localised, it never made it to the West. Before we get into the details of the second game, we're going to talk a little bit about the first game. Just as the actual card game took inspiration from the original Pokémon games, so does the trading card video game. The player collects a deck of cards from a professor based on the elements of fire, water, or grass. They must compete against various characters in the world. This includes a rival, eight club leaders based on different elemental types, and four card player grandmasters. The player can also create their own deck with cards obtained throughout the game, and can save the various decks using computers. Although it borrowed many elements from the original games, the Pokémon trading card game also introduced ideas that became a standard for the series. One example is the ability to run by holding in the B button. This was introduced to the core series in Pokémon Ruby and Sapphire, but until the trading card game, no such ability existed for the series. The game featured digitized versions of real cards that were illustrated by Ken Sugimori, Mitsuhila Elita, and Keiji Kinabuchi. There are a total of 228 cards. Cards featured within the title, but some of these cards couldn't be obtained without the use of the Card Pop feature. Card Pop allowed two players to link up their games using the Game Boy Color's infrared function, which would provide both players with a random card, similar to the Mystery Gift system found within the core titles. The title was created by Hudson Soft and originally announced under the name of Pokemon Card. The project's western release was initially delayed by two months. It's believed that this was done so Nintendo could focus their marketing on Pokemon Stadium for the Nintendo 64. When When the game did release, it came with a promotional card featuring Meowth. This card was only available with the game, and wasn't sold anywhere else in the West. In Japan, a special Legendary Dragonite was given away instead, and it was made exclusive for the region. While most cards appear within the title, two were missing. Electro from the base set, and Ditto from the fossil set. This was due to difficulties getting their abilities to work within the game's engine. As a result, a new card for both of the Pokémon was made exclusively for the game. The Electro card, however, was later made available from an online card shop. The game features two cameo appearances in the characters of Mr Ishihara and Imakuni. These are both the president and CEO of the Pokémon company, Tsunekazu Ishihara, and Pokémon anime musician Tomowaki Imakuni. Imakuni's appearance with a question mark resembles that of his stage name. The Pokémon trading card game was praised and had successful sales. Over 600,000 copies were sold in Japan by the end of 1999, and around one and a half million copies were sold in America in its first year. With the growing popularity of the trading card game, it seemed only inevitable that there would be a sequel. With several expansions to the physical card game being made, there was plenty of content to use for another game. Also developed by Hudson, the sequel was titled Pokemon Card GB2 Here Comes Team GR. The game boasted several new features and improvements over the previous title. This included being able to choose your gender, an extensive training mode to educate new players, and a diagnosis system that let the player know how effective their deck would be in use. Many new cards had been published since the first game released. These additional cards were added to the game, bringing its total up to 445 cards. While this number is higher than the original, a large number of cards were left out. The game's story was also expanded, and didn't simply revolve around the player collecting club medals and defeating the Grand Masters. A new rival team appears called Team Great Rocket. Led by King Bilalichi, the team kidnaps a number of the club masters and has stolen almost everybody's Pokemon cards. It's the player's role to save the Club Masters and defeat Team Great Rocket in their headquarters. As a direct sequel, the game not only allows the player to explore the island found in the first trading card game, but also a second island called GR Island. This made the game's world seem much more fleshed out and improved upon the relatively short length of the first game. New graphical features were added too. Opponents now had a variety of expressions after a duel commenced, such as being happy when winning or sad when losing. Another change was the introduction of coins. These coins are awarded after winning a club match, as opposed to the medals found in the first game. They can even be used to replace the coin shown during coin flips throughout the game. A noticeable difference between the two games is how the entranceway of each gym is presented. Originally, each gym simply had a different symbol to define it. In the second game, the entire room is themed after the gym's elemental type. Another new feature was a Game Center, which featured several mini-games. These included a game where the player has to flip a coin and land it on heads over and over and over again. Doing it ten times over unlocks a MU card. There are also slot machines which have a bonus game attached to them. Unlike in the core series, the slot machine plays itself, and has no user input for stopping the reels. As you can see here, we tried many times to get the three rainbow icons to line up so that we could play the bonus game. However, we simply couldn't do it. These minigames would grant tokens to the player and they could be traded for additional cards. While the previous game featured connectivity through the use of the Game Boy's link cable, it isn't possible to connect the original trading card game to the sequel. Battles and Trading Between Generations was a highly praised feature of the core series of Game Boy games, and was expected to be in the second card game too. As a result, when players tried to perform a card pop between the first and second card games, several issues occurred. This included glitches like the game's freezing, or the data from the first game being completely lost. The card pop was once again one of the only ways of obtaining two cards within the game. Lugia and here comes Team Rocket. Similar to the previous title, a trading card was made to promote the game, Great Rocket's Mewtwo. The card was planned to be bundled with the game, but was packaged with the Special Edition Celebi Game Boy Advance instead for unknown reasons. Pokemon Card GB2 didn't release in Japan until March 28, 2001, which was a week after the launch of the Game Boy Advance. This was problematic for the original Game Boy as a platform, as the introduction of new hardware usually means the death of a previous device. The first trading card video game took years to be localised, and the sequel was literally twice its size. The Game Boy Advance released in North America just three months after it came out in Japan, so even if the game was localised at breakneck speed, and only took a year to come to the west, it still would have been published on a dying platform. Although the game would have likely seen respectable sales figures, Nintendo probably cut their losses in order to focus on the development and marketing of new Game Boy Advance games. The success of their new hardware would have been far more important to them than the success of a single game. If a console doesn't sell well at launch, it may lack support from other companies, and a lack of games could trigger a snowball effect of poorer and poorer sales on the platform.
4: Game Boy had an incredibly long life for a piece of gaming hardware, with it being released in 1989 and not being discontinued until the year 2003. This long life brought tons of memorable and beloved games with it, and despite the system's audio and graphical limitations, it was the first time gamers could genuinely take good and engaging titles on the go. The system was the birth of the Pokemon franchise which went on to become, well, the Pokemon franchise, that you definitely know about already, but other smash hit titles like Super Mario Land 2, Golden coins also pushed Nintendo into the status of a home entertainment staple. And of course, we'll be talking about Super Mario Land 2 as well as Pokemon Gold and Silver in today's episode. But first, we want to talk about a surprisingly interesting Game Boy game with a truly unique feature Mission Impossible. Film tie ins used to be far more prevalent in the gaming space at the time of the Game Boy, with most of which, honestly, being a total waste of time. Companies knew that they could make a quick buck selling games to people that had just seen the latest blockbuster, so relatively mundane video games were a great means of extra revenue for small to mid-sized game studios and film studios alike. With Mission Impossible, which was released for the Game Boy Color, a rather unique feature was included in the game which made use of a new addition to the Game Boy Color's hardware, the IR sensor. The game includes the Impossible Mission Force Agent Organizer, essentially a rudimentary PDA at a time when such devices would have cost an arm and a leg. Players could store notes, addresses or messages, and then transmit that data from one player to another who also had a copy of the game. However, the infrared sensor was used for something a little more impressive than even wireless communication circa 2000. The ability to use your game's console as a remote control for your TV. The game was able to learn signals used by remote controls for things like radios or televisions, allowing you to change the channel without access to the remote control, essentially serving as a universal remote. This can be handy while at home, though booting up Mission Impossible on your Game Boy Color may be a bit long-winded to switch channels from Law and Order to Countdown. But it would also mean that you could change channels on a TV out in public if you've configured your system correctly, even working from up to 20 feet away. This essentially grants the player the ability to be their own small time Tom Cruise, or even smaller time Tom Cruise. From a major blockbuster film series to a blockbuster game franchise, Final Fantasy Legend is well known for not always being a Final Fantasy game. It's pretty well known these days that the title's branding was changed in the West to focus entirely on Final Fantasy, when the game's Japanese name being Seiken Densetsu, with Final Fantasy Gaiden being its subtitle. But this isn't the only time the game was changed, and this is far from the biggest change that occurred. According to a Japanese Seiken Densetsu guidebook, one of the title's programmers claimed that the game actually began its life as an experimental tennis game. The quote, as translated by Clyde Mandolin, reads, This game actually started out as an experimental tennis game. At some point, the court turned into scrollable screens, the racket turned into the playable character, the ball into a weapon, the opponent's racket turned into enemies, and the court became what was referred to as the map. And before I realised it, a story was added into it, and then the game was released as Seiken Densetsu. It was a curious experience. It isn't going to be a Nintendo system without some kind of breakout hit Mario title making an appearance. And while the first Super Mario Land was by no means a bad experience, Nintendo made great leaps with their sequel, Super Mario Land 2 Six Golden Coins. The first Mario Land was perhaps limited in its appearance, with Mario being just 10 pixels tall, but for 6 golden coins we got a more detailed look at the plumber and the world he's in. But this more detailed look put a spotlight on how strange the game's art direction and design really was, with things like a Jason Voorhees inspired enemy and a world made of knockoff lego. But apparently the game was originally far more unusual. During an interview with the game's director and designer, Hiroji Kiyotake, he stated, With Super Mario Land 2, one of our ideas was not to be bound by the conventions of the previous games. However, when we showed our first draft to everyone, they were like, I don't know, is this Mario? We realised that we were on the wrong path. So we toned down that idea and made something a little closer to the existing Mario world but it seems that the developers may have overcorrected, and later in development tried once again distancing Mario Land 2 from other Mario games. The title originally used the same sound effect for Mario turning into Super Mario as Super Mario World. But halfway into development, the team decided that hearing the Super Mario World sound effect on the Game Boy was just a bit off and they were afraid that players would become negatively conscious of the fact that they were playing on a small screen, and begin to compare Mario Land 2 with the audibly and graphically far superior Mario world. Six Golden Coins was also the birthplace of one of Mario's most iconic characters, Wario. Wario didn't just work as a fantastic villain for the series, but could even transition the gap of antagonist to protagonist. Wario Land 2 for the Game Boy was an extremely well received title, and most likely served as the cement for Wario's position in the Mario franchise. The title received a re release just a few months after its initial release on the OG Game Boy, which optimized it for the Game Boy Color hardware. In the Game Boy Color enhanced release of the game, while still possible to play on a Game Boy or a Game Boy Color, the save files for both systems were not compatible with each other. For this reason, when trying to play a Game Boy Color save file on the Game Boy or vice versa, the game will go through a set of menus to delete old save data to accommodate that of the other system. So forget about lending it to a friend and expecting your save data back. Another change between both versions appears in the levels Turn Off the Giant Faucet and Escape from the Teacup. These levels contain a unique fish enemy that grabs Wario and pins him to a wall until he escapes. For unknown reasons, the Game Boy Color release replaces this unique fish enemy with a standard sawfish. Despite this omission, full colour graphics for the unique fish are still present in the game's code, so at some point it was clearly planned to remain in the game. Another Nintendo series with a strong following is the curled ball of strawberry milkshake Kirby. Kirby's Dream Land 2 actually contains a fairly large number of secrets and cameo appearances from other familiar faces, such as the mini-boss Blocky, who originally appeared as one of the enemies in HAL Lab's earlier series, Adventures of Lolo. Not only this, but if the player frees the same animal friend as they're already riding, then there is a fairly infrequent occurrence that the sacks which usually contain Gooey will instead contain Blob, a female version of Gooey. This isn't the case in the game's original Japanese release though, where Blob's role is actually taken by Chao, the female protagonist from Famicom Fairy Tales Yuyuki, a Japanese only Famicom Disk System adventure game by Nintendo. It's also possible to unlock a sound test mode in the game, which displays an image of Kirby, Rick, Kine and Koo all sitting around a table, whilst Gooey and Blob play a piano in the background. Once again however, this differs from the Japanese release of the game, where Chao can be seen sitting at the piano, recreating a scene from Famicom Fairy Tales Yuki. Another of the Pink Puff Paul's games to hit the Game Boy was Kirby Star Stacker, and this too had a number of elements changed when localised outside of Japan. One of the most notable is the game's various food items being swapped from fairly common dishes in Japanese cuisine to something more commonly found throughout the West. One other thing missing from western territories was a complete remake of the game, released as Kirby's Superstar Stacker in 1998, exclusively in Japan for the Super Famicom. At one stage the game was set to be localised internationally, but because the Super Nintendo was coming to the end of its lifespan in North America and Europe, the decision was made to keep it exclusive to Japan. Now, Radar Mission is likely one Nintendo-developed game that you didn't keep up with. Released in 1990, the title is a fairly simple take on the classic tabletop game Battleships, and since the general theme of the game is war, it seems Nintendo wanted to sneak in their own little easter egg to reference another of their popular licenses. In the game, the player uses a star symbol, while the enemy forces use a moon symbol, the same symbols used by the ally and enemy forces in Famicom Wars, as well as the other Wars titles, such as Advanced Wars. And now it's time for what probably half of you clicked the video for, some Pokemon Trivia. Here's some very obscure trivia from Pokemon Gold and Silver that is so rare it can only be seen by trading important items with your friends. Gaming YouTuber Pika's Prey manage to discover a small piece of text that only appears under certain conditions. In the game, Claire, the leader of Blackthorn Gym, gives the player the task of setting out for the Dragon's Den in order to obtain a Dragon Fang, a key item only found in this location. However, if the player obtains the Dragon Fang through another means, such as either trading it through a Pokemon who is holding the item, or by hacking the item into the player's inventory, Claire will be most upset. She actually refrains from giving the player the rising badge, and will call them out for having cheated, as the item has not been obtained from the game's Dragon's Den. She will say, you did not get that at Dragon's Den. Trying to cheat like that, I'm disappointed in you. The Game Boy was revolutionary. It took gaming on the go, and it had some killer games to boot. The only real problems with the system was that it wasn't exactly pocket friendly, and you couldn't see the screen if you had no external lighting. This is often riffed on, but it seems a pretty glaring issue with the system, and viewing the Game Boy games through a modern lens really paints the experience in a different light. But regardless, the games were solid, and Nintendo's first party offerings were quite remarkable, all things considered. Mario's Picross, Donkey Kong Land, Metroid 2, Link's Awakening, and Pokemon Gold and Silver demonstrated that great products can come in compact sizes. If you consider the OG Game Boy to actually be compact, that is. The experiences of these games may have been limited by hardware, but their design was top notch, meaning that they continue to see relevance in later years, with Metroid 2 even getting a full remake treatment for the 3DS in 2017. But the idea of remaking the game was much older than that, with the original Game Boy releasing back in the early 90s, Retro Studios had considered remaking the game as early as the mid 2000s. Ben Sprout, an artist with Retro Studios, posted on his WordPress blog in 2009 in response to a Metroid 2 fan remake of the game being released online, stating, I've always thought it would be awesome to remake Metroid 2. A group of us at Retro even discussed doing it as a side project at one point, nothing ever came of it, though I still think it'd be fun to remake it as a 3D side-scroller. Another name which appears in Metroid 2's credits is Dylan Cuthbert, widely recognized for his work as the main programmer on the original Star Fox released for the Super Nintendo. In Metroid 2, he receives a name drop under the Special Thanks section, which according to Cuthbert in a 2016 interview is thanks to the work he did assisting the team, providing programming advice and helping with the game's optimization while he was working on his own title, X, also released for the Game Boy. Speaking of which, X is an important game in and of itself. In order for Dylan to create X, his team at Argonaut had to create their own Game Boy development kit, a task that was not so simple to achieve. According to Dylan, we hacked together a Game Boy development kit with a camera pointed at the Game Boy. They'd gotten it into circuit printing and were printing the circuit boards in this bath full of acid. We're not certain, but X may well be the only game that came to be, partly thanks to a bathtub full of acid. Our next Game Boy title is Mario's Picross, a great little puzzle game which stood the test of time. This is another Nintendo title that had a whole bunch of changes when it was brought to the west. These included a number of changes to the puzzles, altering what the player must draw out on the Picross boards. One of these was the alteration for a puzzle featuring a picture of a cocktail drink, which was changed into that of a Boo character from the Mario series, essentially changing boos into a Boo. It seems Nintendo's main focus was on removing references to alcohol, like with another puzzle that was changed from a glass of wine into a hat, or a mug of beer that was turned into a crow. References to the Buddhist religion were also removed by placing a Buddhist bell with some garlic. A similar change happens with what seems to be a Buddhist guardian, Neo, being swapped out with chili peppers. References to Japanese culture were also changed to more universally recognized images, with the removal of a Japanese tea kettle for a much more recognizable burger, and the change of a hand drum and yokai to popular animals. Another puzzle was changed to remove a cigarette, which is a surprising image to include in the first place considering it's a game for all ages. Other changes include a toy puzzle having been turned into a unicorn, and despite efforts to distance the game from religious iconography, a fan puzzle was turned into an angel. When it comes to creating a new title for the Game Boy, it makes sense to work on a game specifically designed for pocket adventures, with inspirations coming from games on home consoles. However, while Donkey Kong Land wound up being an entirely unique game in its own right, The original plan was for the game to be a straight-up port of one of the SNES's most graphically impressive titles, Donkey Kong Country. Programmer Paul Mahachek, however, managed to convince higher-ups at Rare that a new, original title would make more financial sense, saying Whenever anyone asked me to convert a console game onto Game Boy, I expressed the opinion that we'd be better off writing a new game in the same vein, and that the extra resources to do that wouldn't be much greater than for doing a port, whilst not limiting your market and reducing its size to those people who hadn't just bought the console game. It was a point of view I expressed in 1994 when I was asked to port DKC and instead wrote DKL for Game Boy. This was also a sentiment that Cranky Kong would get behind, as Donkey Kong Land's manual expressed the whole game was made after Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong had a bet with Cranky that they could have fun even without fancy graphics and modern music. Despite this point, however, the original Donkey Kong Country was given a port to the handheld's mid-generation upgrade, the Game Boy Color, albeit a whole five years after Donkey Kong Land. Another one of Donkey Kong Land's secrets is that the game was originally going to feature a new animal buddy called Rambunctious. Little is known about what this little fellow could do, and why he never made it into the game, just that they were, you know, a ram. Maybe they were just a little bit sheepish. Hearing from developers who worked on our favourite games gives us some great insight into game creation, a job which for many may seem like a dream come true until you find yourself on the other side. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening was a game that certainly delivered joy to many players, but in the files from the Giga Leaks a couple of years ago, a development note from one of the game's programmers revealed some more sentiments around their work at Nintendo over the years. Left by programmer Kazuaki Morita, the note titled Bearded Uncle goes on to talk about his experience working with Nintendo, and his thoughts as he moves forward in his career. It reads, I think there are jobs game developers will never forget, in the same way that people who fish remember their first catch, regardless of its size. For me, it's Super Mario Bros. It had a huge 32KB programming area for the time, and I packed in nearly that much. It was a big fuss even if you had a few free bytes. Then the infinite lives, the minus world, I think the word tricks started being used around this time. I'm relieved they're not always called bugs. It's been about 8 years since then, and I've been involved in various other games, but as I get older, I feel my head is spinning and my memory is weakening. However, I think that my slyness has been only further enhanced. It is often said that a programmer's life is up to 30 years long, but that's just a social custom, saying it happens because you don't have to work, when really it's that you are unable to work. And I think I might quit this job if I feel I've reached my limit, since there's no such thing as a programmer who cannot program. You may be pleased to hear that Kazuaki would stick with Nintendo for many years after Link's Awakening was released, mostly sticking to work on the Zelda franchise as a programmer, though in recent years taking on more roles as a supervisor, possibly starting to feel his age when it comes to his programming tricks. What would a variety of Nintendo games be without the mention of Pokemon? Pokemon Gold, Silver and Crystal came after Red and Blue, so players were of course expecting some riveting new features to their grand adventure. It turns out that there was a feature set to change the game's immersive experience, giving the player a sense of being in the Pokemon world, but it was removed before the game's final release. A fully functional feature that allowed the player to name their mother. This function was included in the data of the Space World 97 demo of the game, which offers the choice of calling your mother, mother, mama, mommy, or the option of giving her the name of your choice. A curiosity around this data takes place during the demo's Pokemon Catching tutorial, however, in which the player's name is copied to the same location in the game's RAM as the mother's name is stored, suggesting that, by the time Nintendo had finished creating the game's tutorial, the mechanism of naming the mother was already planned to go unused. Another bit of interesting content can be found within the game's data. Interestingly, all 26 forms of unknown have shiny variants, but only the unknown that are shaped like an I and a V can be shiny. This is, by complete coincidence, due to both how unknown forms and shininess are dependent on IVs. This means that there are 24 forms of unknown which have unused shiny variants.
3: For this episode, we've collected trivia from a variety of Game Boy and Game Boy Color titles. While Nintendo took over the TV in many homes, the company had yet to dominate gaming on the go. With the release of the Game Boy, that all changed. Nintendo led the market with a relatively modest machine in comparison to competitors like the Game Gear or Atari Lynx. As is a common trend with Nintendo, the design of the handheld didn't rely on power alone, with many praising the system for its long battery life and rugged build quality. The Game Boy paved the way for many series that are still staples in the industry, and continue to see sequels to this day. One of the best-selling titles for the system was Tetris, though this is likely contributed by the fact that many Game Boys were bundled with the puzzle game. The game was so popular that even Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak was an avid player. His passion and skill with the game was particularly noteworthy, as he'd regularly send in his scores multiple times to Nintendo's official magazine, Nintendo Power. His scores often reached the top of the scoreboards, however, Nintendo Power eventually stopped publishing his name in the magazine because of his constant dominance. This didn't deter the entrepreneur who managed to get around his shadow ban from the charts by submitting his scores under another alias, Yvette's Kainzow. This name would be approved and put onto these score tables, despite the fact that it's a thinly veiled disguise, simply being Steve Wozniak spelled backwards. Another powerhouse of the Game Boy was undoubtedly the Pokemon franchise. It's fairly common knowledge that the original Pokemon games had many errors, but this seems to stem to the game's box as well. The blurb on the back of the boxes states that the player can catch 139 different Pokemon without trading. However, a player can only obtain 124 Pokemon in a single playthrough without trading. This is because the 139 number includes Pokemon that the player could attain, but has to choose between. It doesn't take into account that players must choose between the Omanyte and Kabuto families, the Evolutions Hitmonlee or Hitmonchan, and the three starting Pokemon lines. It also doesn't take into account the four Pokemon that only evolve when traded. As a side note. We also found that this line stating that 139 Pokemon can be obtained in the game is incorrect on early versions of the back of the Pokemon Blue box, which seems to be a copy-paste of the blurb from Pokemon Red. This mistake was fixed in later revisions. Two more franchises that made a stand on the Game Boy are the Mario Land and Kirby series. These two platforming giants did so well on the handheld that they were used to educate children. The Japan-only VHS tape, titled Mario Kirby Maisaku, which means Mario Kirby Masterpiece in English was an animated short made to teach Japanese children various kanji symbols. It didn't feature much animation, however, and was mostly still images accompanied with Japanese text. The short was split into two stories, one loosely based on Super Mario Land 2 featuring Bunny Mario, Wario, and Peach, and another based on Kirby returning a lost puppy to its mother. The video is narrated and voice acted by Mayumi Tanaka. This, in particular, is noteworthy, as this is the first time Kirby was ever given a voice. Speaking of Kirby, there's some interesting trivia within Kirby's Pinball Land. By default, the game's high scores are held by Zephyra, Fisali, Dendrob, and Gerbera. These names are actually a reference to characters from Mobile Suit Gundam 0083. The names are short for GP-01, Zephyranthes, GP-02, Fisalis, GP-03, Dendrobium, and Gabura Tetra. Another fact about Kirby's Pinball Land is that its game engine was likely used for Pokemon Pinball. This is based on the similar gameplay of the two games, and the fact that HAL Laboratory are credited in Pokemon Pinball, even though the game was developed by Jupiter Corporation. A fair amount of games on the handheld contain hidden messages and content. Within the data of Spider-Man 2 The Sinister Six, a hidden message can be found which references several of the game's developers. Grant Davies, Michael Smith, Peter Suara, Paul Clark, and Ivan Kenny Sumiga. The message reads, Grant was last seen fleeing Taurus Games with a briefcase packed full of money under each arm. He remains wanted in four states. Smitty made several unsuccessful attempts to circumnavigate the world in a lunchbox. He now lives in Peru. Peter Stinky Suara devoted his life to the quest of spiritual enlightenment. He has lived in Recluse since Spider-Man. Paul submitted several game designs to Activision, all featuring a snowboard and a railgun. None were accepted. Ivan was arrested after a hosting series of wild parties with crazy antics. He is currently serving 32 life sentences in a state penitentiary. In Sabrina, the animated series Zapped, hidden messages actually change depending on which regional version of the game is being explored. In the US version, there are three instances of the same message reading, Hello there. But in the EU version, it seems the developers were aware that people would look at their game data, so included a little joke. The three messages includes a single instance of Hello there, as well as Wow, Salem, so this is what the inside of a hex editor looks like. And Hey, look, someone ripped our game. Strangely, another piece of code is a reference to a file path for one of the developer's computers, or more specifically, a reference to their zone alarm antivirus settings. The Game Boy Color game Looney Tunes Collector Alert has its own hidden image too, which is only accessible through a cheat device. To see it, the player must use the Game Genie code 8 a 17 daf 74 then hit reset. This time the message is in French, and shows a young child with the words, From the team at Martian Alert, with Bugs Bunny saying, Hi Jeremiah, likely included by a developer as a hidden message to their son. Next on the list we're talking about SpongeBob SquarePants Legend of the Lost Spatula, which was the first dedicated SpongeBob game. Not only does the game have a hidden level select menu, it also has at least one unused area. There's a room to the right of the Outer Town map that can be accessed by hacking the game. The room in question appears to be a version of SpongeBob's living room that resembles the Season 1 episode Jellyfish Jam. While not actually hidden away, Conker's Pocket Tale's code is peculiar compared to most Game Boy games. The cartridge itself contains two separately programmed games, with one running when inserted into a standard Game Boy, and another when inserted into a Game Boy Color. While both games have the same story, some of the title's gameplay mechanics actually differ, as well as the game's maps. This Game Boy title was actually created to precede a Conker game on the Nintendo 64 called Conker's Quest, which was later renamed 12 Tales Conker 64, and then completely reworked into Conker's Bad Fur Day. As a result of these early plans changing, Pocket Tales has absolutely no connection to Conker's N64 misadventure at all. Another game which was almost forced to change direction by publishers was Shantae. Shantae's co-creator, Matt Bozen, has said that during development of the title, publishers had a hard time accepting the developer's choice of a female lead character. Bozen stated, The most common reaction to Shantae back in the 90s was, hey, great looking game, but who do the guys play as? Like, we must have messed up and put the Player 2 character in the Player 1 spot. It felt like our work was being dismissed for no good reason, and it made no sense to me. But eventually I came to understand that these people genuinely knew their markets, and that the game would probably not sell, and that was even more irritating. So I feel like Shantae had to exist, even if it was just to reach out and see if there was an audience reaching back. The game would ultimately see its release in 2002, extremely late into the handheld's life cycle, being published by Capcom.
5: Did you know Kirby's design was originally a placeholder for another character and wasn't intended to be used at all. Kirby's creator, Masahiro Sakurai, became fond of Kirby's simple design and decided to make him the star of the game. At the time, the game was titled Twinkle Popo, and Kirby's name was Popopo. This was actually referenced in Kirby Mass Attack, which is set in the Popopo Islands. In a Game Informer interview with Shigeru Miyamoto, Miyamoto stated that the Kirby name was partly chosen because of John Kirby, who defended Nintendo in a lawsuit against Universal over similarities between the movie King Kong and the arcade game Donkey Kong. The name Kirby was on a list of potential names for the characters, and the developers thought it would be funny if John Kirby had a connection with their cute character. Another thing that influenced choosing the name Kirby was that Kirby's a soft, cute character. Cute Japanese characters often have soft-sounding names to match their appearance. Miyamoto thought that the juxtaposition of a cute character with a harsh-sounding name like Kirby was also funny. For a while, Kirby's color scheme was undecided. Sakurai wanted Kirby to be pink, but Miyamoto wanted him to be Ultimately, Nintendo decided Kirby should be pink. Miyamoto's yellow Kirby was used as the default color for Player 2 whenever there's multiple player-controlled Kirbys on screen. Before Kirby's final color scheme was chosen, Nintendo of America localized Kirby's Dream Land. They were confused as to whether Kirby was pink or yellow, and didn't know how to represent him on the box art. They decided to play it safe and make Kirby white like he appears in the game. And speaking of box art, several Kirby games had their covers changed in the West. The Japanese versions all show Kirby smiling or neutral, but the North American box, Box arts all show Kirby angry. It's thought these changes were made to compensate for cultural differences between Japan and North America. Some other secrets and Easter eggs include Kirby dancing on the pause screen of Kirby's Dreamland if you wait for 20 seconds, and a crude drawing of a naked woman in the background of the level Red Canyon. There's also an unused Waddle Doo enemy in Kirby's Block Ball, where the Waddle Doo's death animation shows his eye bursting out of his head.
6: Did you know? While Tetris was created in 1984, creator Alexey Pozhitnov hardly received any money from the game until 1996. At the time of Tetris's creation, Pozhitnov was an artificial intelligence researcher working for the Society Academy of Sciences, one of the few Soviet organizations with contact to the outside world. His job was to test the capabilities of hardware sent to the academy, which he'd do by writing simple programs for them. Having always loved puzzles, Pozhitnov wanted to make a game using pentaminos, geometric shapes formed by fitting exactly five squares edge to edge in various combinations. Pentaminos have 12 possible arrangements, which Pajtanov eventually decided was too convoluted for a puzzle game. He decided to use Tetraminos instead, which only have 7 possible arrangements. The game was initially programmed for use on the Russian Electronica 60. Letters were used to form the shapes, as the computer didn't feature conventional graphics. Once Tetris's row deleting mechanic was implemented, Pajitnov found himself too addicted to his own game to finish it. His original build only featured a score system and there were no levels. Prior to creating Tetris, Pajitnov and his partners at the time planned to make about a dozen computer games for the PC and sell them together in one system they called a Computer funfair. However, due to the laws in the Soviet Union, attempting to make private sales of a product was a dangerous endeavor. Because they couldn't sell the games, they ended up giving them out for free, but the only game which garnered much interest was Tetris. Its name was a portmanteau of the Greek prefix tetra, meaning four, and Pajitnov's favorite sport, tennis. The PC version made its way to Hungary, where it was discovered by Andromeda Software Limited. In 1986, Pajitnov gave the rights of Tetris to the Perestroika movement in Russia for ten years. At some point in 1987, Andromeda allegedly obtained copyright licensing of Tetris for home computer systems, but the Soviet government hadn't begun marketing the rights until 1988. Video game licensor Hank Rogers discovered Tetris at the 1988 Computer Electronics Show, and after which he licensed it for as many systems as possible through the American company Spectrum Holobyte. As it turns out, Holobyte's parent company, MirrorSoft, had already given some of the licensing rights to Atari, rights Rogers thought he'd obtained. The fate of Andromeda is unclear, but the version released for PC by Spectrum Holobyte, which legally obtained the licensing rights, mentions Andromeda in the opening message. Eager to cut through the confusion and secure rights to the console and handheld versions, Rogers went to Moscow to get things settled. He was able to meet with Electronorg Technica, the Soviet bureau which handled the export of software. They told Rogers they'd never given the rights to anybody at this point, though it's unclear whether they meant the console rights or any rights at all. Regardless, he was able to seal the deal. He acquired the rights, then made a deal with Nintendo to bundle Tetris with the Game Boy. The Game Boy version alone would go on to sell 35 million copies. In 1996, the rights to Tetris reverted back to Pajitnov, who had moved to the United States five years prior. He would finally be able to make some money off the game he invented. Poshitnov and Rogers established the Tetris Company, which combined copyright registrations for Tetris products in the US with trademarks in countries the world over. Not only did the Tetris Company set up to thwart all illegal clones of Tetris, they also established what is referred to as the Tetris Guideline. While the Tetris Guideline is not currently publicly available, the specifications ensure all Tetris games from 2001 onwards appear similar in form, with standard Tetris modes adhering to the guideline. As far as the community has diagnosed, this includes a couple of interesting things. One guideline dictates the color of each piece. The I must be cyan, the O yellow, the T purple, the S green, the Z red, the J blue, and the L orange. This rule began with Tetris Worlds and has carried over ever since. To cut down on players having to relearn major aspects of the game's system, part of Tetris's guideline also includes the Super Rotation System. This defines the axis on which each tetramino spins, and how it reacts to colliding with a wall. Another mandatory inclusion is the song commonly referred to as Type A, which played during the A type mode in the Game Boy version of Tetris. This song is a version of the Russian folk song Korobiniki, and was arranged by Hirokasu Tanaka. The Tetris company decided to use this track despite Pajitnov's initial negative reaction to its inclusion in the Spectrum Holobyte version of the game. It was very embarrassing for me. When kids of the world hear these pieces of music, they start screaming, Tetris, Tetris. That's not very good for Russian culture. Tetris has also been a surprisingly relevant player in the realm of psychology. In 1991, Dr. Richard Ayer, a professor at the University of California's Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior, scanned people's brains while they played Tetris. The purpose of the experiment was to evaluate whether the brain requires more energy as the game gets harder and faster. The results indicated that the opposite was true. When people first start playing Tetris, their glucose metabolic rates, or GMRs, skyrocket, meaning the brain is using lots of energy, but after playing daily for several weeks, players' GMRs Return to normal, but their performance had increased sevenfold in some cases. A study conducted in 2009 by an Oxford University research group evaluated the effects of Tetris on victims of post traumatic stress disorder. In instances of PTSD, flashbacks usually determine the severity of the symptoms experienced, as they are unpredictable and visceral stressors that can make other symptoms worse. The study involved having subjects answer trivia questions, do nothing specific, or play Tetris within six hours of watching a disturbing film. A week later, those who played Tetris reported less flashbacks of the film than the other groups. The hypothesis put forth by researchers is that the visual spatial exercise of playing demanding games such as Tetris is somehow protecting the brain from revisiting traumatic events as often. The reasons for this are still undetermined, but the results have been duplicated enough to indicate something worthy of further investigation. A team from the Research Institute of McGill University Health Center tested the effects of Tetris on people with adult amblyopia, commonly referred to as lazy eye. Amblyopia specifically affects one eye, resulting in the reception of unclear images from that eye. The brain considers the images from this eye to be faulty, and over time, the unaffected eye hinders the impaired eye from improving. Regarding the use of Tetris, senior authority of the study, Dr. Robert Hess, said, The key to improving vision for adults was to set up conditions that would enable the two eyes to cooperate for the first time in a given task. Their testing environment included head-mounted goggles that displayed a different image to each eye. One eye saw the falling objects, the other saw the objects on the ground. The patients who participated in the test experienced significant improvements after only two weeks. Hello,
4: and welcome to Region Locked. Nintendo's Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening was a widely praised action-adventure title for the Game Boy. The game's engine, however, was not an original creation. It was actually taken from a Nintendo title made a year earlier. Known in Japan as Keiru no Tame ni Kane wa Naru, translated as For the Frog the Bell Tolls, the game shares several similarities with Link's Awakening. Due to the game never having an official English release, its name is disputed. Despite its literal translation, Masahiro Sakurai referred to the game as The Frog for Whom the Bell Tolls during development of Smash Brothers for Wii U and 3DS. This uncertainty likely stems from the game's name being a reference to the Ernest Hemingway novel For Whom the Bell Tolls. Whatever its name may be, we're more interested in the game itself and why it never came to the West. If you've ever played Link's Awakening, you'll have a fairly good idea of how this title works, but there are some key differences. The game is a standard action-adventure RPG that utilizes a top-down perspective. While outside of dungeons and caves, the player can navigate the world and explore various villages, towns, open plains and other places of the same ilk. Enemies are visible on the game's map and battles will begin once the player physically bumps into them. Unlike Zelda, the game's battles conduct themselves, and the characters take turns throwing hits until one dies. The player's performance is based on on their stats which can be improved by collecting stat boost items dotted throughout the game. Once in a dungeon, cave or some other adventure segment, the game turns from a top-down perspective to a side-scrolling perspective. This gives the player the ability to jump and crouch, and has them navigate stages to complete tasks. This is similar to Link's Awakening, though an item isn't required for the prince to jump. The game's plot follows the protagonist, the Prince of the Sable Kingdom, and his friend Richard, the Prince of the Custard Kingdom. They've shared a friendly rivalry from a young age, often competing in various fields. They're evenly matched in every way, except when it comes to fencing where Richard holds the upper hand. While fencing together, a message is received from the neighbouring kingdom of Milfoyer. The evil King Delarin has captured the beautiful Princess Tiramisu and begun the invasion of the Milfoyer Kingdom. Richard takes a boat and rushes towards the kingdom, abandoning the Sable Prince forcing him to buy a boat with his plentiful supply of money. Whilst working his way across the island in an attempt to catch up with Richard, both are transformed into frogs. As the game goes on, the player has the ability to transform into a human by eating a joy apple, or turn into a frog by falling into a body of water, and turn into a snake by eating a snake egg. Each form has their own benefits and drawbacks, such as snakes being able to crawl through narrow tunnels but being unable to fight. The frog form is capable of jumping large gaps but like the snake, can not fight. As a human, the prince is able to fight enemies and use items, but is more restricted in the overworld. The game is relatively basic in nature with only dungeons providing any real strategy or skill. Platforming can be somewhat tricky in places and the player must memorize the stage. On the overworld, fights often result in not being able to kill something. Since battles play out automatically based on stats, the player must explore enough to find items that improve the stats. Despite a lack of localization, the title has a small cult following in the west due to its unique story and developer pedigree. The game has made several appearances outside of Japan and was first referenced heavily in The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, most prominently in the character of Richard who uses the same sprite as Prince Richard. His villa also has several frogs and his theme music is the overworld theme from The Frog For Whom The Bell Tolls, Wario Land 4 features an appearance from the Dr. Erosteen, known as Dr. Nitwit in the game's fan translation, and the Prince of Sable appears as a sticker in Super Smash Bros. Brothers Brawl, as well as being an assist trophy in Super Smash Bros. for 3DS and Wii U. There was an unofficial translation created by Ryan BGSTL in 2011, which does a wonderful job of translating the game and its humor into English. There is even an attempt by romhacking.net user Rotus to convert the game into color. Funnily enough, Nintendo had a similar idea back in 2002. Unseen 64 reports that 10 years after the game's initial release, Nintendo announced a Game Boy Color remake of the game game, only for it to be cancelled soon after. The reason for its cancellation was likely due to the Game Boy Advance's impending release. The reason the original game wasn't released in the West has never been stated. There are, however, a few possibilities. The game's humour may have been difficult to translate for Western audiences, as it makes many references to Japanese culture and places. However, this seems to have been handled well in the fan translation. For example, in the original Japanese game, one of the towns is called Port Simizu. This is a pun on sea water as well as a reference to the port town with a similar name, Shimizu. In the English fan translation, the city is named Port Saltwater, which removed the reference to the Japanese town, but kept the seawater theme. The battle system is also unconventional and may have been too experimental for Western audiences. The game was also a new franchise for Nintendo, and a genre that they've never really tackled on a handheld before. It's possible that Nintendo decided against releasing the game with so many potential localization issues, and put the resources into more financially sound projects. Did you also know that the Banjo-Kazooie games have many differences in their Japanese releases? Or that Rockstar asked EA to remove references to GTA from the Simpsons game? For more facts about platformers, check out the video on screen. Apologies if this voiceover is a bit rough and ready. I am feeling under the weather today. My throat is so sore. That is all.